Welcome to Lost River Legends. Our motto, Ex Tenebris, is Latin for Out of the Shadows. We attempt to understand the complex world around us and bring light to subjects hidden in darkness. We explore paranormal topics with guests from all around the world. Now welcome your Lost River Legends hosts, James and Brett. We hope you enjoy the show. back to the show for part two of our interview with Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. With the prehistory groundwork laid, we reach deep into his knowledge and repertoire, and despite some curveballs, Gary doesn't miss a beat. We discuss the overarching conspiracy as it has made its way into the mystery schools, the Templars, Rosicrucians, Opus Dei, the Jesuits, Freemasons, and other adept secret knowledge societies. The Gnostic polytheists have sought to restore Babylon through different means to influence the timeline of prophesied events found in the Bible. These agents of chaos have a pattern of attempting to summon ancient gods of the pantheon to invoke their powers on earth. Is this pattern still happening? We discuss the Tower of Babel as a stargate the establishment of King Nimrod only 100 years after the flood. In an effort to scratch that curiosity itch, we discuss the hollow earth, the Thule and Vril secret societies, and the ancient Ariosophy as carried out by the rogue Nazis, and talk about some of the implications of that coming overseas to the United States. Please listen intently, as there is a lot of information to connect we actually couldn't be more excited to have Gary on our show. That, that empire. So there was many civilizations, understand, before the flood. And I won't get into how many at this point unless we want to come back to that. But this is that new Atlantis they're trying to set up again, for the new Nephilim world order in the end time, from the descendants of these giants, and to bring the angels back out of the abyss, just as described in Revelation 9, and the angels that get cast down to the earth in Revelation 12, and there's the war in heaven, and that they want to set up their dragon messiah, who is that offspring of these bloodlines that will become antichrist over the world. So, that's sort of that quick connect the dot. Wow. That, that ran the really, um, the gambit of what I was asking there. It did, it did trigger a couple of uh, questions for me. Um, you talk about the abyss. Um, and so question one there is, is the abyss a physical place here on earth? Uh, if so, where would you think it is? Um, and then also you talk about Atlantis. Does that have a location uh, that could be could be traced. 
as well. I've, I've heard and seen things about, you know, there's an area in North Africa that has kind of a, a swirl shape, uh, could, could, could have possibly with, you know, water been a totally different, uh, place or are we talking Antarctica here? Yeah. Okay. So let's take the first one first. It's a little easier um, and quicker to answer. So the abyss is said to be in the underworld and in the earth. And the word hell has been conflated over time and into English, and it needs to be separated to have a better understanding. So hell is made up of three places. One is a Sheol, which is Hades or the underworld or the other world the different names that would be uh, cast about. And that um, contains a prison within the underworld, in the earth, called the abyss. Okay? I don't think that it's in the physical earth. I think it's in a different dimension. Right? And that's why with things like quantum computing, matching up with AI to allow quantum computing to go in more than one single direction at a time, they can get into different dimensions. And one of the things they're trying to do is probably get into that abyss and bring out those fallen angels and gods that were locked in there. And also the search for the God particle, which is the Atman particle that is a rabbit hole. I won't go down right now. Um, but that's what they're, what I, what I think is going on right now with the technology to, to, to release those, those fallen angels. And so in another dimension, and we know there's different dimensions within the Bible. We know there's a spiritual dimension that's in heaven, right? For example. So we know there's more than one dimension and science is showing that there's several different dimensions. Don't know how many, but they're discovering apparently more all, all of the time. And then the other part of, hell would be the lake of fire where the angels and the gods and the people who take the mark of the beast are going to go to at the end of the end time. And then Satan after a thousand years later. So as we understand that, then yes, I think it's a physical place. Gives very good descriptions of this, but I think it's in another dimension now with Atlantis. And as you mentioned, North Africa, is a location that people are focusing on for the location of Atlantis. I think they're partly correct on that. In fact, Ethiopia, which connects back into the ancient name of Atlantis, um, and I cover that off in the book phonetically, its location is actually moved to where it is today from where it was in North Africa. And that makes a lot of sense, but it's not the center of the empire. It's not the continent island because what they're talking about is on the coast and inward, not out the ocean. And Atlantis was an island. There is that circular architecture that you're talking about that, that would be probably have made if it is um, connected to Atlanta as kind of a branch, sort of similar copy of the head office, let's say. Um, just as you would have, let's say, a master temple and you would have branch temples that would be similar. Now, if you go back to what I was talking about in terms of there was 10 um, kings of Atlantis, starts to say, okay, well, where was that kingdom located? Well, in 10 different parts. Part of that was in England, in Ireland. Part of that was in Central America and South America. Part of that was on the coast of Portugal. And part of that was in North Africa. 
So they're going to find some resemblances to Atlantis there, including that, that inland circular structure that you're talking about. Can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I do remember reading about it. And it has similar rocks and things and color of the rocks that are on the coast. So whether or not it is in the islands that are just off of Portugal or closer to Bermuda, we don't know where the actual Atlantean city was, but there's a lot of underground underwater today that have a great age that is not explained by science as to where they came from. A lot of people also think that there was this tectonic shift of the Earth's surface that set, sent Atlantis down to Antarctica, and that's where it's located. I don't know whether that's the case. What I do believe, though, is that there was an Atlantis, and it was originally off into the Atlantic Ocean from where it takes its name, but we just don't know exactly where. I appreciate that explanation, and you... You took, I get, I think I fired four questions at you. You took it and took them in rapid succession there. So I appreciate that. Um, let's see here. Um, let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about Sasquatch. Just take a little bit of a, a step aside from where we're at. Talk about Sasquatch. What, what are some of the possible origins, connection points, uh, genetics if possible? Yeah. So, I think there's a connection there with Nephilim and with the other creations. Um, maybe it's created a little bit differently. Say, is it an offspring of a god? Then we would have to look for some sort of hairy, ape-like god. There aren't that many of them around, and they're not necessarily in all pantheons. You know, the one that I would... Um, Rays would be uh, Dero, which was uh, a god that created multiple monsters in terms of creatures. Uh, maybe monsters, if people look at them as intelligent, Sasquatch uh, is intelligent, which I think they are, uh, might not be, be appropriate for them. But anyways, Dero would be a, a god like the Sumerian pantheon. Dero was a god in... Uh, India associated with Ganesha, a god of India, which was an elephant god. Um, but I'm going to come back to that in a second and tie, tie some of this together. So Tiamat, Lamassu, Bas, and Bas was the goddess in um, the Black Panther movie. She was also a creator of these type of many types of creatures. And so Tiamat uh, created, you know, things like the scorpion beings and all sorts of creatures that... Uh, um, as these other gods did. So that's one possibility. It came from sort of this master manipulator of, of, of uh, beings that created these offspring. But there is one god that is in India that's associated with Ganesha, which is Hanuman, which is an ape god. And there are similar type of gods, which makes sense because ancient Taoism and uh, the other religions as you go eastward came out of Hinduism out of the Aryans and Brahmanism and, and that whole uh, religious uh, genesis after the flood. So um, there is that one god, Hanuman, that's an ape god, that um, 
and or a monkey god might also be described. And there are monkey gods in China, which is where I'm sort of leading with that. So that's a possibility, and that would be Suwa King that was a monkey or an ape-like looking god. And these gods would have been giant creatures, right? So not don't imagine it as a small monkey when they talk about a monkey god, more like the overall sort of species type of thing, right? Greater species of it. So that would be a possibility. And then the other possibility is the DNA manipulation. Um, but typically the DNA manipulation would likely create beings as with Ambaba that we talked about or Chimera that we talked about with multiple types of um, but having said that, even some of the giants have like in descriptions, they've got, you know, like goat's feet and lion's heads or tails and all sorts of things that don't match up to one body. So again, all of that suggests sort of a DNA manipulation. So, but what we do know is, is that these creatures also have kind of a connection to some of the ogres and ogre type creatures that. Uh, come out of mythology. So they could be part of that as well. Not the dumb ogre that, that people sort of see in the cartoons today. But there are, there are connections to them in terms of being similar to Nephilim because Nephilim were thought to be hairy too. Um, only with blonde hair and red hair. And the Horim lived in caves and were cave dweller type of hairy Horim, which are thought to be part of the Hurrian race after the flood. And so you got large and hairy. Now the Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti, all the different names there are around the world aren't exactly the same size as what a Nephilim would be because Nephilim were bigger. But they are a fairly big creature and they're, and they're hairy. And they have glowing eyes as I understand it, with red, white, and amber lights are the common colors in the Bigfoot one, and where bluish light and orange light would come out of the Nephilim. They were called, in many areas, like in the Tuatha de Danan, which are the fairy matriarchal aspect, as opposed to the dragon patriarchal allegory for the bloodline that Dracula comes out of, um, for, for example, um, dragon versus fairy. Um, but they're known as the shining ones, both before and after the flood. And that's because their eyes glowed and they could light up a room. This is, are the Nephilim. So you get that sort of connection. My understanding is Sasquatch have the ability to communicate, maybe not necessarily with voice, at least that we're aware of, although you would be more familiar with that than me, but certainly by tapping on things and communicating that way. But that would also, you could leave open the idea that they would have verbal communication because in the dog warriors, the dog Nephilim, some of them can speak and some of them can't. So you get that side of it from another version of, of the, of the Nephilim side. And Bigfoot kind of live in caves just as, a lot of the, the Nephilim did. And caves are associated with portals, just as they're associated with fairies. And just as the Raphaim after the flood, and particularly the Ugaritic text, with the Raphiu and the Raphium, which is the Semitic root for the Rapha and the Raphaim that goes into the Bible, these were kings that were created by Baal after the flood, part of the Baalim 
organizational structure that I talked about after the flood that would have had the second incursion. And they, they had the ability to go back and forth between the underworld and this world. Just as in Ezekiel 39, you have the travelers or the passengers, depending on which translation that you're talking about. And that's the Hebrew word of beer, which means crosses over. And these are the mighty ones there that are doing this crossing over on, on the battlefield of Ezekiel 39 and end time war. And so you get some of those connections about going um, across dimensions and portals, just as the little people are connected to Sasquatch, Bigfoot, all around the world. And the little people come through portals in a lot of cases. And so you get that sort of connection in, in there as well. There's a connection of the smell of the Nephilim, which had a horrible smell, which they're thought to uh, smell like sulfur, just as you get that sulfur smell with demon possession that seems to, they're able to recreate with, through the physical body once they've got control over it. And or some other substance, but usually a, a sulfur smell, just as you get that type of smell that I understand through accounts with Bigfoot, you get this strong smell. So, and a similar type of smell as I, I as I understood. And animals that Bigfoot is said, and Sasquatch are said to kill, tend to have blood that's, that's drained and missing, as I understand it. Well, Nephilim were blood drinkers. Just as secret societies drink blood and have blood rituals. So you get those kinds of connections. You get some in some of the research uh, that's happened in the last 20 years of DNA that is said to come from Bigfoot in humans with some of the studies that are out there. So they, they, they tend to have some limited cross-pollination with humans. And you have Nephilim, as we talked about, that was creating these families of giants after the flood, creating these hybrid humans and Rephaim after the floods, whether or not it's the Amorites or whomever that you're talking about, the Jebusites, and on and on and on with all these different families. So there's a lot of connections there that suggest that they come out of that root creation, both before and after the flood, or survival of the flood, through the technology and the involvement of the gods before the flood. And from the alien mythos, they're talking the same thing about creating all of these different types of creatures. They just don't give the aliens the level of godhood in the alien mythos. They're just advanced beings doing the same things. But they tell the identical same stories in, in the ancient alien mythos as is talked about in polytheist accounts all around the world. And what is backed up to a large degree with the description that we get out of Genesis and particularly out of first Enoch. So from that, can we surmise that, um, you know, the, the typical, what we would call a gray alien has been around a long time and has been influencing things, influencing things a long time. Well, I would say so if, if that's the case, if they're part of that creation and you know, what's interesting is that they have difficulty reproducing the gray aliens and other aliens. That's one of those common sort of traits. And they're always looking to do sexual experimentations to renew their DNA so that they can continue to populate. Nephilim had difficulties in recreating as well, which uh, is, is known 
sort of far and wide in the legend aspect that we don't get that in scripture, but it comes out from the polytheist accounts that they had trouble in, in recreating. And so when we look at that, we see a connection. But as you say, if these creatures are actually offspring, if the greys are actually offspring of the gods, then they would have been with us from the beginning. And they would have either survived somehow, some way, through the technology off the world, in flying alien ships, UFOs, or with the help of the gods other way, other, in other ways, and or recreated again after the flood. So, if we go to around the world with common legacy, like pyramids, like everything else, these are all common legacies that are on all continents and all cultures. And the little people are, they have three classifications all around the world. And you get the good looking ones and you get the ugly ones and you get the mischievous ones. And I'll focus on the ugly ones because it's, it's pertinent here. And there's all these different sub species within each. And in the ugly ones, you have like trolls and you have the dwarves who made the weapons for the Nephilim and the gods just as are shown in the Tolkien movies uh, and literature. And then you have one group that looked after the genealogies, the technology and the knowledge for the gods and the demigod kings. And those were the gnomes. And one classification of the gnomes are the gray gnomes, the gray fairies. And the fairy legends that come down through history have these greys, as they're called, and the gray neighbors, as they're called in Scotland, flying through portals, fairy mounds, fairy dolmens. Dolmen is the word for portal. Um, if you Google it, and then you'll get these little mini Stonehenge um, architecture pictures that are all around the world. And understand that the Nephilim at Gilgal Raphaim the Wheel of the Giants on the Golan Heights just below Mount Hermon had hundreds of these portals that the Raphael were at that we we're talking about with the Ugaritic text that went back and forth. And so the fairies came through in their flying machines and they kidnapped people for a fortnight, at least in the Celtic version, uh, different time frames around the world. But then they returned the people afterwards without a memory, but through hypnotism and other things, people have been able to come up with uh, some things as to what happened to them that always include things like experimentation, sexual experimentation, trying to get DNA to revive their um, DNA so that they can continue to repopulate. And those descriptions of these kidnappings are identical to a gray alien description. And the greys are an identical description. And I give those accounts, a couple of those accounts in my book. That's, that's totally fascinating to me that that reaches in and connects into all of those uh, traditions and all those different, different things. The dolmens, I think there's um, uh, some big dolmens as well. There's some, there's some big ones yes. over in um, up in Montana. Yeah. And wherever there's a dolmen, there's said to be a portal. So, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these locations for portals all around the world that would go into the underworld or the other world, as, as uh, some other people would call it. So would you need to have uh, hybrid blood to be able to pass through that? 
That's a really, really good question in terms of what it takes to be able to go through that. I think if you're a spiritual being without a physical form, like an angel who can take a physical form when they choose, can go through that rather easily. I think demon spirits can go back and forth between that because they don't have a physical body anymore, but expect technology will provide them phone bodies that they can actually uh, physically uh, interact with the world, which is, which, which is what they really want to do in a place of rest. And that's why they demon possess people so they can rest and then physically interact in the world. And if they're going to be part of the end time, they're going to need a body to do that. So I think we're going to see some sort of bodies created for them. And um, I think that if you're not a spiritual being, you're going to need technology and knowledge to be able to access those portals and go through it. So something you're going to need the knowledge to open those gates up and you may need some sort of knowledge to make that happen for you as a physical being to be able to go back and forth, some sort of protection. I don't know what it is. Um, cause I don't go back and forth between portals. So <laughs> it's hard for me to know, but if a physical being is coming through, either there's no harm that's going to be done, but how do you wave shift into a different dimension? Right. right? So there has to be some sort of technology that goes along with it. And most of the alien encounters seem to be more associated with coming from another dimension and through portals, whether it's from under the ocean or wherever, mm-hmm then coming from other planets. So um, this triggers a little bit of a, uh, I guess, talking about things like stargates, uh, the archetype of a stargate, I guess, in in some of our uh, pop culture. And then also, um, uh, there's something else that I was thinking that I couldn't think of. You're going to like like this then, what I'm going to say then. I think you're going to like it. So... We talked about Babel and the knowledge um, that they had inherited and were demonstrating and thus the dispersion. Well, in the Akkadian language, which is an offshoot of Nimrod being in Shinar and his his peoples that, that stayed there, and the Magi that were developed within the religion and the wise ones that developed this knowledge, they have the word Babel as well. And in, in Akkadian, Semitic language, the, word, the, the translation for Babel is not confusion of languages as it is in Hebrew. It means um, El is in God. A lot of times in Sumeria you get the A-L transliteration, but uh, so it would be B-A-B-A-L if you wanted to look at it from that sort of transliteration, and Bab, which means gateway. So Babel that they were building with this advanced knowledge was a gateway to the God, a stargate. That a lot of people think that they were trying to open up that dimension to open up the abyss to release those gods to come back and associate with them. And the religion that they were worshiping was that religion of the fallen angels before the flood. And that they were aware of who that they were, they were wanting to bring back out so they could, that Nimrod could reestablish that Nephilim world order the way it was before the flood. And again, this happens within a hundred years of the flood. 
Well, and you have all of the, the, the knowledge of, you know, the mystery schools tying into that. So they, yeah. they would know what metals to use, what frequencies to dial yep. in, uh, all of it. That's, that's fascinating. Yep. That's really fascinating. And the myth and the mystery schools that are developed, whether it's the Pythagorean mystery school, which developed, you know, not that long after Babel, all of that comes either from Egypt and Mesopotamia and, and both in terms of setting up those same pantheons around the world and those places of developing that knowledge. And they come down as the seven sacred sciences through the mystery schools that we inherited, you know, to this day. That's really interesting. So I have a little bit of a story for you. Um, so my wife, her grand, her grandfather who's passed, um, he was a 33 degree degree Mason. And to get, to get there, he had to prove his bloodline. Yeah. That was something that was required. Well, you're, you're only invited to become a member of the Freemason. You just can't go join. And they, there's a whole bunch in there that they may not uh, want to allow into adepthood. But by the time you get into adepthood, you're going to have to be of a more pure blend of the bloodline. Now, you're not going to have to be as pure as you would be up at the upper half of the Rosicrucians and understand there's a hierarchy to these organizations. But, of course, that makes perfect sense that you have to be a part of the bloodline. And one of the things I tell about people, if you want to understand secret societies, you have to understand the religion and the bloodline all together and the history. Otherwise you're going to just get confused. So that's, that's fascinating because um, I know that one of her cousins has been invited and mm-hmm. I worry about, will my son be invited? That's, that's kind of the, yeah. the, the thought process I have yep. there, but you know, the same grandfather well, also and, had had ties to um, Howard Hughes and to yeah. Hollywood. And so you can yeah. kind of see there's a pattern there. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it continues. And what you should know, though, is that until you become a deaf, you don't know the true secrets. You're, you're being fed pablum or superficial allegories and information. You don't get the true good. But at the adept level that's where you start to get it. And that would be the old third degree um, in Scottish Rite, which is the 33 degrees is divided up into 11 parts. At that point in time, though, things start to change in terms of the oaths that you have to swear to and the implications thereof and the additional knowledge. And understand that if you're going to oversee Masonic lodges, you're going to have to be the fifth degree in the old degree system. And so as you move up, I don't know how many degrees are. I've been told as many as, as nine or 10, but some people suggest it might be even as many as 13 or maybe more. I mean, I don't know. I'm not part of, part of that. I only do research on that. But what I do know is there's at least five, and they're not, and they're still only at Illuminati level at five. They're not Rosicrucian yet. And 50%, imagine it as a tree trunk of main organization. Um, and pre Freemasonry would be sort of at the bottom. Illuminati is up top. Then you've got the Rosicrucians and you've got the committee of 300. Then you've got the council of 33 and then you've got the 13 families. And then you've got like an evergreen tree with the branches sort of going down that you have all these other 
branches that are going to intersect at certain levels of that trunk. And the Freemasons would be at the lower level looking after the lower sort of aspects and a specific agenda as well with politics and with the army and all of these organizations as you go up would have a specific agenda and then organizations that, that sort of uh, blend in. So let's say the um, Bohemian Grove, uh, which would be people would be familiar in the United States with would, you know, assemble into the Illuminati and the Skull of Bones and those ones from different branches. So all these different branches go into the central trunk to certain organizations. The Rosicrucians uh, are above the Illuminati and the top 50% of the Rosicrucians are all pure blood. Above that is 100% pure blood. So if you have an organization like um, the Bilderbergers, for example, or the Club of Rome, they're typically going to be a branch that are coming out and they're going to have a top half that's represented by pure bloods and lower pure bloods and new money. And so the Bilderbergers that meet once a year, for example, bring in people like Bill Gates, the Clintons, all the new money that I was just talking about that are trying to uh, enable their children to intermarry in their pure bloods to be higher in that organizational structure we talked about before in terms of the purity and the scioning of the bloodlines that go back to the Nephilim into a specific god or fallen angel. Well, those people get once a year their marching orders. Here's what you're going to go back and do by the royal bloodlines that, you know, there are the princes of Europe that are meeting with them, right? And they would intersect into the committee of 300, right? Because they're pure blood. So we're seeing, we're seeing massive coordination at, the, at that level. Um, but also a preservation of, of authority, kind of the pecking order and, uh, maintaining of bloodlines. Yes. Yes. And, and, and so if, you know, people, you know, you may have heard me say earlier in the show that they keep their genealogies. I mean, let's use a quick example of world war one where you have, the Windsors, which are the Hanovers from Germany, they're at war with the Kaisers of Germany. You have the Habsburg Lorraine dynasty uh, of Austria. You have the Kaisers of Russia. You've got basically an interfamily war because they're all cousins. They continue to intermarry that way. And so that even though we don't have all of those families on thrones ruling today, they rule in the background through their money, their influence and the secret societies that manipulate the governmental systems. And we're going to see those that go, go back to that 10 Kings for the end time Nephilim world order that they're trying to set up in the universal religion. But for now, understand that the governments are still guided. And these are world, worldwide bloodlines with parallel organizations. So the 13 families that people might be familiar with are only the Western families, as you would understand them. And the families that they have coming out of the United States aren't the pure bloods. They're pseudo blue bloods trying to ennoble. So if you're talking about the Rockefellers, they're visible. I have to tell you, they're not that high but they're trying through generational intermarriage to, to become higher. And the Rothschilds aren't 
original purebloods. They they were actually the Bauer family before they changed their name, and they were put in business to replace, I know this is opening up another rabbit hole, but to replace part of what the Templars did as the founding patriarchal order that is the father of all the modern secret societies after the fall of the Templars uh, was centralized back then, which is why they decentralized the, the organizations after that. And that's why the trunk is set up and you have different agendas for each of the, of the trunk organizations. So yes, they still control everything, but just in the background. Does that tie? Um, so you're talking about the, the Templars. Does that tie back to the Knights of Malta and Malta being kind of a source for one of the first sources of uh, money lending and, and interest and plunder. Um, Not so much the first time it's plundering has happened, but more of an uh, organized effort. Yeah. So the Knights of St. John, the Knights of Malta and a couple other names that they have, it's all the same organization. It actually forms just before the Knights Templar, but it's a completely related organization. It's a knight order. It is a Gnostic order within the Catholic Church, just as the Knights Templars are. And it is going to survive the fall of the Knights Templar. So understand it's a sister organization, and, and some of the Templars actually escaped into the Knights of St. John, and it has the White Cross. So now what you're talking about in terms of the banking, under, understand first, Templars were the first inventors of modern banking, which is why the Rothschilds had to be replaced outside the church. And we'll, I, if I get there with some time, I'll, 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 I'll link it back within the Catholic church. And so when the Templars were overthrown, the Knights of St. John, who, by the way, requires at the leadership level all royal bloodlines to lead it, part of the black nobility, or the Rex Deus, as some people would, would know him, or Rex Deus. Um, the Knights of St. John had already set up with some beginnings of banking before the fall of the Knights Templar. So most of the banking wealth went after the fall of the Templars, or just before, because they knew it was coming, went to Switzerland, which is why you have Swiss banking that was set up. And so these organizations wanted to get the Templars back into Catholicism because part of the doctrine of the Templars that was set down by the Master Rosalyn and as set out by St. Bernard had called the Templars' agenda was to create the new Babylon through the Catholic Church. So after the fall, and at the depth level, they're all Gnostic. So at the lower level, like Freemasonry, they don't know the secrets. They have this Christian sort of gloss, but they're Gnostic. And they take their organizational structure from the Isms and the Sufis that they bring back out of the Middle East, which is polytheism within Islam. Um, and the founders are all of the Templars are all royal bloodlines. So Anjou is the typical one that produced the Plantagenet kings and dynasty and the Boulion and the Payon, and they're out of the Lorraine region, hence Hapsburg Lorraine dynasty intermarriage when they came together. And they take their bloodlines back 
the last survivor of the Merovingian dynasty. His name is Dagobert, and then back to the giants and other Sion bloodlines through that bloodline. So you have the Templars establishing the banking. It goes over to the Knights of St. John. They need the new Templars within the Catholic Church to set up the new Babylon. That becomes the Jesuits. And the Jesuits are funded by the Montessa order of royal bloodlines in Spain who inherited a lot of the wealth after the Templars fell in, in Spain. And they're sponsored by the king, obviously, there. And Borgia, who is also of the bloodline of the popes out of the Catholic Church, he's the grand master of the Montessa order that was created in 1307 after the fall of the Templars to accept that wealth. He sponsors Ignatius of Loyola, who has had the vision of Mary to become the soldier of Mary to change the Catholic Church within. He's sponsoring and funding this organization. By 1570, he actually takes over the Jesuit order and has control of it. And with the King of Spain, they get control of the banking and control of the Vatican that they move thereafter to control over the Jesuits, but move the banking from Rome to Switzerland. So now they've got two parts of the three-part leg of, of banking, and the Rothschilds now have their banking moved over to Switzerland as well. That came about in the last hundred years or so, but they didn't initially move over there. So they were able to regain the banking arm within the church through Knights of St. John, through the fall of the, after the fall of the Templars, and then recreating the Rothschilds, recreating the Jesuits. And all of these orders exist today in certain parts, just as Templars are alive in many of the other organizations like Freemasonry with their uh, rituals and as part of the Rosicrucians, which were the founding adept of the Knights Templar that actually split in 1188 at the cutting of Elms. But I know that's another, another rabbit hole to go down. And so the Rosicrucians are sort of the main sort of embodiment of that Templar order that is just below the Committee of 300. Wow, quite quite the um, quite the construct there. It's interesting to see those interrelationships and the windfall after the Templars fall. Basically, it's almost like a, a little bit of a setup. Kind of almost feels yeah. that way. And what happens is right after, say, in 1317, I believe was the year, is when 33 of these adepts of the Templars and bloodlines and princes went and met with the Vatican to see whether they could reestablish the uh, Knights Templar. And there was 33 of these individuals, and they were called the Invisible Ones. And... Uh, the Vatican said, yes, but we're going to control it with our bishops. They said, no. So they went underground, and formally that's when you start to see visibility of the Rosicrucians start to come about 1323 with the Rosy Cross Order in Scotland, where a lot of the Templars went and formed Freemasonry uh, after helping Robert the Bruce and the St. Clairs, which are the St. Clairs, and St. Clair was a battle partner of Hugh de Payon in the, in the original forming of the Knights Templars. You take all of this down, and I won't go into the genealogy of the St. Clair's all that much, but um, understand that 
they form out of that the rosy cross order, which is sort of the first visible aspect. And I talked about Dracula earlier with Vlad the Impaler. He was adopted into the Ordo Draconis or the Sarkhan Iran, which was created by the Rosicrucians to retake the thrones in Europe and start the pursuits of thought, which is their term for the Renaissance and the knowledge that begat with that movement. And so you have, have I guess where I'm going with all of this sort of information is, is that the Rosicrucians are a key organization that come out of the fall of the Templars that are intersecting in all of these groups that A, set up the Jesuits and are also known as the Invisible Ones and the Royal College, which is the parent of modern science and education outside of the church was set up by Rosicrucians and the Freemasons, and its alternative variant name is the Invisible College, named after the Invisible Ones, and they called themselves the last of the sorcerers and the first of the scientists. And just to connect the last sort of dot on this is, is that the Jesuits also, as part of what they took over, was complete education within the church, control of the seminary schools, and outside the church with Protestantism, the secret societies and the Gnostics infiltrated Christianity and control the seminary schools today, which is why they're not taught about prehistory and they don't teach prophecy. That's pretty all-encompassing. Um, and sitting atop all of this at the very, very top, I mean, are we to believe that um, they're beholden because of their bloodline, because of their history, because of uh, almost a charge to carry out these things? Or is there instruction coming from someone coming through the other side? I, I think personally yep. it could be um, Lucifer through, through an avatar or it could be um, Cain himself. Yeah, so in, after you become adept, and particularly once you're up at Rosicrucian level or a higher degree, they talk about communicating with, and there's several different names, and people can pick whether or not they're aliens, whether or not they're spirit guides, whether or not they're fallen angels, whether or not they're demons. They're also called the Great White Brotherhood, the Celestial uh, Brotherhood. Um, they're all talking about the same individuals that are providing them knowledge and information. And I think that knowledge and information is accelerating, which is why we're having an acceleration of our current technology today. And a good classic example is, is that they're trying to bring about the end time, as we talked about earlier, not God's time, but they'll accept the ordained time that they have to. The Nazis, also said they were talking to these same individuals. The Nazis had a antichrist archetype in Hitler who wanted to set up the Third Reich to reign for a thousand years, the false millennium. And they had their own religion in the Reich Church, which was called Ariosophy, which was an Aryan um, grail perversion of what the Rosicrucians invented religion of theosophy was the religion that rose that uh, Francis Bacon, as we talked about earlier, wanted to create to have set up for this world religion that harmonizes science with religion in the end time in the new Atlantis and, and in the book that he wrote about. And so 
the Nazis had this Ariosophy religion, and they said through the adepts that ran this at the top for them, they communicated with these spiritual guys, these same mafia uh, of spiritual beings that um, the secret societies communicated with. And this starts to explain on how they were able to create the Blitzkrieg strategy out of nowhere that changed warfare as we know it, how they created the Panzer and Tiger tanks, which is still the base design of all modern tanks to this day. And if they could have come, you know, created them in numbers um, that might've won the war, it starts to explain how they develop rocket and jet technology, single wing, um, radar resistant, self, planes and on and on and on with the technology that they were developing. They, they were, they actually said they were given this information from these people through that religion at the adept level. So that plays into um, some of that also plays into the Vril, the Vril Yah, um, the Tool Society and um, some, some of the, I mean, some believe that they're the anti-grav um, technology that we, mm-hmm. you know, have seen some examples of, you know, there's, there's so many photos, so many, so much footage, you know, well, of, the Nazis were created out of the secret societies and theosophy that and it went rogue with their areosophy. Real is the uh, ideology of the Rosicrucians that goes back to the blood of the giants and the gods. And that if you could backwards engineer this, this real blood, you could actually recreate the giant. And so the Nazis were trying to do through genetics, were trying to create the new man or the new Nephilim, but they totally believed in the real that went back to Thule. And Thule was their version of Atlantis. Um, that's where the Aryan mythology comes from. Now the Aryans, as that mixes in here, they believed are the ones who escaped out of Tartarus out of the abyss after the flood. And so there were giants from before the flood. And these are the blonde hair, blue eyed Aryans and the area, uh, area Manu that, um, also went down into the middle East and into Sumeria and intermixed with the giants. And I'm not saying that that's legitimate. I'm just saying that's what they're saying happened. And there was also another type of Aryan that was the, red-haired, hazel-eyed variety that went to Scotland and Ireland and England. And these Aryan Tuatha de Danann, who they actually take their name back to, the Aryans and the tribe of Danu, or the tribe of Anu out of Sumeria, of the Anunnaki, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed ones migrated up to uh, Germany, Russia, Transylvania, Romania, and Sweden. And that's that real, real Thule ideology that's overlaid. And the Thule Society was actual secret organization uh, uh, that was one of the sponsors of Nazism, along with a German Norden and many other secret societies. But that was brewed all through secret societies and the polytheist religions to bring about the end time. So they really did think that they were bringing about uh, something 
of a new age, uh, Babylonian resurfacing. Um, it's interesting too, that, um, eventually a lot of the Nazi scientists came over to the United States. We know, uh, project paperclip, 10,000 of them came here. Um, and then also, um, we have Parsons down in California with the Babylon working ritual and that getting into rocketry and getting into perhaps an exchange of technology with uh, what we would call aliens, but maybe was not aliens, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's how you want to define what those aliens are. Exactly. And uh, it also answers the question and uh, explains a lot about the uh, Indiana Jones movies in terms of how the Nazis were looking for all of this ancient history and ancient knowledge and ancient powerful weapons. That was all true because they were absolutely bitten and smitten with this ideology and that they wanted to become, you know, this, this ruling power on the earth. And they felt that would happen through their fallen angels that they're following in the demons and the information they're getting and this hidden lost knowledge that they were, that they were looking for. And then you start to connect back in that it would seem that there's documentation that they actually had set up a base on Antarctica. What were they looking for? Then what's going on with Antarctica today and how, I guess, I'm not sure what the right word was, but there was this rush to, at the end of the war, to round up all of these scientists, as you said, through Operation Paperclip. And the Russians were trying to do the same thing in terms of, that's how far advanced they were in their scientific knowledge that came out of nowhere. Yeah. And it was like almost, uh, that they could replicate, you know, they could replicate, yeah. uh, the, the knowledge, the high, I, I wouldn't know if high knowledge is a, a good way to a good word to assign to it. But, um, you know what, with, with the Antarctica thing, um, there's also a little bit of, um, you know, they were trying to find Agartha. They were trying to find the inner earth, the hollow earth. And I did want to bring up yep. hollow earth, the hollow earth theory. Does it play in? Um, or there, there's also another model that might play in as well called yep. the um, the expanding earth theory. Because in the days of Peleg, we know that we had one land mass and it got split. Yep. And, and so, you know, yep. it almost makes sense that the orange would be expanding and an orange peel would you know, um, mm-hmm. take shape kind of what, what our um, earth looks like today. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, we don't really know how the, how and why the continents drift. We know they drift through science. We just don't know how fast they drift. Uh, and we don't know what causes that. Like, why would they drift? Nobody ever answers that question. So that growing aspect of the earth answers that, 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 you know, create that, that drift just because of the growth. Uh, again, that's just sort of what answers it from my speculation the most, as opposed to these floating continents. Well, they're floating all over the place. There's ocean currents and everything. Why aren't they moving at a quicker rate? So something doesn't quite add up in, in the continental drift in terms of what science is telling us, but I'm not saying a growing earth is the answer. Just that it seems to have a more plausible, um, aspect to that. Uh, as far as, uh, 
Argatha and all of these underworld cities and accesses, they're, again, it's one of those worldwide legends, right? And there's entrances to the underworld everywhere. And plus, we've just learned there's portals to maybe different dimensions all around the world. So if there is a place in the center of the earth, all of these places go to the same place, but into a different dimension, I, I think is probably the best way of, of, of looking at that. And, uh, you know, when you look at Mount Hermon again, and we talked about Gilgal, Raphael, the Wheel of the Giants with all those portals and the ones going back and forth. Well, Mount Hermon is the home of the Temple of Pan, you know, the goat god. And, you know, Azazel is depicted as a, ga- a goat god. And there's a whole host of them like Bacchus and Cernunos and Cern, and they're all either the same god or the same kind of god that's been degraded from their original status. And where the Pan God, Pan Temple is, is a place that they call where the Rock of the Gods are, and the cave that is the cave or the entrance uh, to Hades, or the underworld is. And Mount Hermon is the place where the oath was taken to create the giants on, whether or not they were created there or in Sodom and Gomorrah, both before and after the flood. Different argument. But we know the oath was there, was sworn there for sure. And this is where I think the Baalim ruled from, where Baal ruled from. Uh, and the post diluvian giants before those guys went in, into the abyss as well for the same violations. And this is also where Jesus went to speak. And he was proclaiming his church, which was going to be the end to their ruling council of gods, which probably rules from Mount Hermon, where the Balim created. So I think all of this is talking about the same thing in different terms and manners. But yeah, I think I think those are entrances, and there's just not one Arkatha place and location. I think it's an entrance to this underworld location in the earth, in another dimension that also contains the abyss. Those are some fascinating points there. I, that's that's yeah. really cool. If you think of, of that, um, you know, Christ going basically like at the foot of the enemy and yeah. establishing saying, I am the way <laughs> I, you know, my, my law, my rule, you know, the fulfilling the 10 commandments, no other gods before me, um, yeah. you know, no graven images and, and, and don't worship what you make with your yeah. hands. When you put that yeah. in perspective yeah. with and, all and of this, says, I will, I will build my church on this rock. And he changes the name from Simon to Peter, which means rock that is going to bring about the end of your rule. When I come back the second time, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And having that perspective and lining it up, with that lens that you've now um, helped help create for, yeah. for our listeners to understand that, you know, there's a pass through here. There's um, there's, there's a kind of a different way to look at things, but also yeah. if you understand, can strengthen if you understand your the faith. prehistory, if you understand the prehistory, you can make sense of history and what is going on today, because you have to understand that to understand what is really taking place in the, in these events. 
Well, one other thing I want to um, to ask you and just kind of see, kind of pick your brain on um, something that we're kind of keen on investigating and learning more about is something referred to as uh, the electric universe model. Um, and it talks a little bit more about the ancient sky having the better sun in the sky, uh, some different symbols that play into things with the Saturnian sky um, as, as a sun. I wanted to know if you could speak to that. Well, it's an interesting point. And, you know, if you look at the six days of creation and the creation of the firmament, separation of the waters to create the firmament so that you can have life on earth and have the land, uh, the, the waters recede and the land come up out of, out of the water so that you can have the rest of life. You get a couple of things that are, that are going on in there in terms of, okay, well, why, why weren't the waters already separated? What, what does that mean? And you have following that within uh, this creation, you're having the moon and the sun set into place, Right. And it's required to have the light. So it has a, the correct process that is being described. But it has some questions. It's like, well, isn't that interesting? Um, if, the, if the earth was, if the universe was already created and everything in place, and earth was in place there, then why is there this sort of rearranging of the furniture, so to speak? Well, there's an answer to that, possibly, that, with the same question that you're raising about a different type of sun and a different type of possible environment. But when is that environment? Gets to be the question. Certainly not just before the flood, because nothing changes with the sun after the six days of creation. And nothing changes in that sort of event in any of the polytheist versions as well. After uh, the planet and earth and life is created out of the chaos, and the chaos is the collapsing of that water. And that's one of the keys. But if you look at Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2, you can translate that as standard dogma has it. Or you could translate it as the earth became void and formless. And if you look at the definitions for void and formless, tuhu and boohoo, it goes back to destruction and ruin as if something was ruined. Which suggests that there was a space and the earth had become form and voidless as a, as a possible um, translation. And that in Psalms 1, in Psalms, Psalms in Isaiah 45, God says that he does not create anything in vain and created things to be lived in. Vain is the same words that are being talked about in Tuhu and Buhu. It's the same word. And so... He didn't create the world not to be lived in, but yet he didn't create it whole. And then Psalms 104.30, it talks about when God sends the, his spirit, the world is renewed. And you have the spirit in Genesis 1-2 before the creation process. It's there to renew the world, not create it. And that when you're talking about Psalms 104, it has uh, more details on creation. And it tells us, along with Job, 
34 seven, as I recall to eight, um, that the angels were created before creation and were there when things were put into place and that the foundations of the earth are forever. As you link in the foundations of the earth passages in the Bible. And so when I look at what is going on there and I look at the angelic rebellion, I won't go and litigate the whole thing. It's actually, I did a two and a half hour presentation of true legends on this. And I have documents for people who want me to, to, to walk them through verse by verse on it. The angelic rebellion actually fits better between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Where you have, let's say, in the Vedas, you have the world, the gods fighting with these nuclear weapons. And that if the world was destroyed down to its foundations, it would be needed to be renewed. And, but the foundations are there forever, so they couldn't be destroyed. And if you destroyed the world that was, as 2 Peter 3 talks about, the world that was in water and out of water, the world that is reserved again for destruction by fire, that this destruction of fire in the war of angels destroyed the earth down to the structures and the waters of the firmament collapsed onto the earth and created the chaos that needed to be separated in the six days in the renewal of the earth, then things start to make some sense. And then that the sun that was realigned with whatever other destruction was made in that war, because we don't know how far it went into the universe, that the sun and the moon had to be set back in place in the other planets so that you don't have asteroids destroying the earth and things like that were put in place. It starts to make a whole lot more, more sense. And that if you look at Exodus 20, when it talks about the six days of creation, and the heavens being created, heaven is defined in Genesis 1 and all throughout the Old Testament, including Exodus 20, as meaning three different heavens. There's the heavens that is the firmament. That's of the arcing thing that we see above the earth. The second heaven is outside of that and the rest of the universe. So anything beyond the sun would be out behind, you know, beyond that universe because we're told the sun is in the firmament, and the third heaven is the spirit heaven. And so that lines up perfectly with Psalms 104 and, the, and God sending his spirit to renew the earth that was destroyed in the angelic rebellion. And if that's the case, they would have had a different sun. And if that's the case, the world is way older than the 6,000 years of the standard dogma the church teaches. And who knows? what that world was like. But at some point in time, and we don't even know how long it would have been left in chaos. Could have been a short period, could have been a long period, but it suggests the world could be as old as what science would suggest, and it fits the angelic rebellion, and it fits the dinosaurs as well, which would have been these creatures that were giant in a world of giant creations that the fallen angels like to make. And they're serpentine reptilian beings, just as the seraphim angels who are in charge of government and religion and are the ones that are the ministers that work before God's throne. So the rebellious ones, they were these 
plume serpents or these feathered serpent gods or the seraphim angels or the nagas or the Chinese dragon creator kings that created these giant dinosaurs who are pictured more and more now as, as science learns more with as being feathered beings in a time before the six days of creation. So I'm not doctrinal on, on this, but for me, it fits better with all the information we have to assemble. I love it. I love the, uh, what you're able to just reach in and grab contextual connecting points. And that's, that's part of why I asked that question. Um, and when I, you know, I, I didn't want that in the middle of the conversation. I think it, it's more appropriate now that we've kind of visited uh, prehistory and, um, you know, post flood and into modern history. We really appreciate you, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we're going on two hours here. We're probably going to have to break this into, into two, but it's, it's a treat. It's a treat for me. I feel like um, you've given me a lot to think on and to ponder on. Uh, it motivates me to want to reach into what is considered prehistory. Can you give uh, our listeners a little bit more information about how to um, get a hold of your book, um, get a hold of you if they want to? Sure. And I'm going to give a little bit more information because I just realized I, I didn't give some of the context. If you look around in prehistory, most of the gods are these serpentine gods dragon god, right? These are, those are the seraphim angels and their offspring gods um, look just like, or their offspring kings and rulers look just like them and had all of these serpentine imagery. That's there for a reason. It's the seraphim watchers who were the ones who created the Nephilim who did the governance and the religious aspect. And that's why you have serpentine imagery all throughout occultism and the polytheist religions. I mean, it's just, it's just part of the history. So if you want a little bit more information on my book, go to my website. It's called the Genesis six conspiracy.com www.genesis six, the number six conspiracy.com. I have a generous excerpt on all 98 chapters. Um, and people will get a good feel for the book. If that's the book for them. And if you did want to buy it, you can get a signed copy from me there, or you can link over to Kindle for the digital version, or you can link over to barnesandnoble.com, or you can link over to uh, amazon.com. And it's available on most online bookstores. It's distributed by Bookmaster. So if you're a fan like I am of, of supporting the local bookstore, they can order it in. So they have it. That's who distributes the book for the publisher. And if you wanted to get a hold of me, ask me some questions or get a hold of some of the documents that I was talking about today um, or a topic uh, that you say, do you have something on this? You can contact the author through my website and uh, I will send you that, uh, that information or try and answer your question. Uh, the email on there, you just have to hit the icon, but the exact email is genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. So pretty easy to remember. And, or you can contact me on Facebook under Gary Wayne. Uh, I have an open timeline and you can message me there. The rest of my social media, I've kind of waiting to see where I want to go and not utilizing those other ones, but I still keep the Facebook one open and I'm looking for other platforms. I was on Parler. I was on MeWe uh, for different reasons. I'm not on there and I'm looking for other alternatives in the meantime. Fantastic. I think that we're at a very interesting turning point in history. Um, 
here in America, um, I know we have some, some, uh, outside of America, but we are in some very interesting times. It's interesting if we apply this lens to that and see, you know, is this what's, what need what needs to happen? Is this what needs hap- to happen to have certain other things happen? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're in a very important times and people are having a difficult time trying to figure out what's going on. So I, I encourage people to, to dig into it and learn for themselves and make a choice because um, just by you, it's still making a choice. You just don't know you made a choice. So learn about it, make up your own mind what you think is going on. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate all the time that you've taken. We feel enriched and I hope you feel the same way. It It was an awesome show. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lost River Legends. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and consider subscribing. Here at Lost River Legends, our primary focus is delivering unique topics, amazing guests, all paired with top-notch production value. The earth we live on has many hidden secrets, countless paranormal stories, and is filled with amazing, curious humans who are trying to find answers to life's questions. Here at Lost River Legends, we are no different. We believe an active curiosity to the unknown is ingrained in the human experience. We hope you'll join us on our journey to explore the lost legends of the earth by listening to past and future episodes. Until then, James and I wish you health, happiness, and a curious mind. And remember, the clock of life is ticking away. Don't waste another moment and live your best life.